Today, Datages goes international in our continuing focus on don't let what you can't do prevent you from doing what you can. And the Datages tribute to Disability Awareness Month here in July, we're excited to bring to you our first international guest. Stay with us to meet a dad from down under. You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Friends and family, welcome back to Datages. As I said in the opening, we're bringing you an international dad of mystery today. I'm so excited to welcome to the studio Martin Alcott. He's an amazing man and an equally amazing father, as you'll find out in the next hour. My wife and I met Martin and his wife, Dana, in New York City several years ago. It's been years since I've seen Martin, but it's so great to have him join us here for Datages. Martin, welcome to the Datages virtual studio. Well, Chad, thank you so much. Who would have thought when we sat down to brunch in New York City a couple of years ago that here I am on the Dadages podcast and your first international guest. I'm super, super happy to be here and very honored to have that role as your first ever international guest. And Martin, it may shock you as much as it shocked me to go back and put all this together. But, you know, our meeting uh, in New York was one of those just random chance encounters that come about when you travel the world and you just kind of keep yourself open to what might come into your life. Nina, Dana, you and I all met over breakfast in lower Manhattan. And would you believe that that was actually 2017? It seems only like yesterday, doesn't it? I know. It's amazing how time flies. A couple of things brought us together. Obviously, we love great food. So we're in that nice restaurant having a a breakfast brunch. Our wives got chatting and of course they are joined very, very closely by their love of designer women's clothing and women's handbags and women's shoes. We were over there watching Dylan compete in the US Open and it was a very exciting time for us. And then we got on so well just in a couple of hours of brunch that we had dinner, I think a few nights later on and we've been in contact ever since. So it's really, really lovely and We'll talk about it a little bit later, but Dana and I hope to be in the US at some stage with some of our businesses, and we really look forward to catching up with both of you, uh, not just over the airwaves. Yeah, it's amazing that one extended brunch that we had that got extended to dinner, as you said, and you know, here we are six years later. As I shared with you, Martin, in preparation for this interview, I've gotten to a point in my life where I really don't believe in coincidence anymore. I only believe in providence. And there was a reason that we came together and there's a reason that our families have been so close for so long since that time. No, absolutely 100%. And as I said, really honored when you asked me to be a guest on your podcast and even more honored when I realized I was the first international guest. So I hope everyone in the US can understand my horrible accent. I'll try and speak clearly and enunciate properly and see how we go. No, you just make us sound that much more sophisticated. (laughs) So thanks for bringing that element. One thing I noted about 
our ability to stay connected over these past years is sometimes I may be in that camp that regularly highlights the negative impacts that social media has had on our culture, impact on our children and the way they communicate and the way they maintain relationships with people. But I really don't think that we would have been able to maintain the friendship that we have if it wasn't for social media and all of us stalking one another all the time on the gram. <laughs> well, I think social media, I, I agree with everything you say about social media. It could be a, a terrible way that people communicate and, of course, you know, cyberbullying and all that sort of stuff. But it's also a great tool about how you can communicate with people, how you can stay in touch when used correctly and, and you use it, how it works best for you. I mean, I have, I think, maybe a huge 156 followers on Instagram. My son's dog, Source, he's got a little dash out, has 17,500. So that, you know, really makes me put it in perspective of where I am in the social media world. The, the totem pole of Instagram, you're, as Nina would say, the chicken at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But hey, I'm happy to keep in contact with my very close 156,000 friends and followers. And that works for me. And as you said, it kept us in touch. Nina's history of being a great chef, great lover of food, stuff like that. The great holidays you have on always make Dana and I feel, oh man, why aren't we skiing in some mat this weekend with the Hagels type of thing. So yeah, it's been really cool. Well, you guys know the invitation is always open anywhere in the globe at any time. I know. <laughs> Let's rewind back to 2017, because as you said, it wasn't just chance coincidence that we were both in New York at that time in the fall of 2017. We were there to see the U.S. Open, and you were there because your son was competing in the U.S. Open. And as I said in the recent solo cast episode that is the companion episode to this, Dylan is one of the GOATs, a true, amazing all-time athlete, but not a conventional athlete. And I think that it's a really good opportunity for those members of the Datages friends and family who maybe don't know anything about Dylan or about his storied career for you to brag a little bit. So dad, tell us all about Dylan. Well, thanks, Chad. Yeah. Dylan was born with a, a disability, had a, a lump the size of my fist on, on the base of his spine. And it was a tumor, which he had removed when he was just a couple of weeks old. So I guess like a lot of your dadages listeners there, when you have a child with a disability, you I knew nothing about his disability when he was born. And I think a lot of people are out there, you know, when you have a child, you don't get a manual with them and you, know, you get a lot of great advice. But um, when you have a child with a disability, you certainly don't get a manual with it. So it was an interesting journey. Myself and his mum spent the first two years of his life in the hospital, the Monash Medical Centre. I'd go to work during the day, come back there and get changed, sleep by his bed at night. His mum would come back next morning, give me a fresh suit, I'd have a shower and go off to work. And that just became the absolute norm. People often say to me, Chad, what were your goals and ambitions for Dylan in those early days? And it was honestly just to make it to the next day. You know, we had an incident there where he's a few weeks after his first operation, his whole body swelled up. And he was like, if you can imagine that um, advertising, he looked like the Michelin man. And I was there doing the nighttime duty and we rang the surgeon 11 o'clock and his wonderful surgeon, uh, Miss Lewis, said, well, I'm going to give him a lethal do dose of steroids. And I said, what will that do? And she said, it'll either kill him or save him. And uh, I remember I took a photo of him because I thought, you know, this could be the last photo we ever take of him. And they gave him the injection and, you know, we sat there just waiting to see what was happening. I was checking his breathing about every two minutes to make sure it was still okay. 
And the surgeon came in at eight o'clock the next morning and she looked at him and she examined him and looked at his chart. You know, here's his tiny little baby. He's only a couple of weeks old. And she said, Martin, you don't have to worry about this one. He's a real fighter. And he's proved that from day one where he has always, even when he couldn't talk and we didn't think he really knew what was going on, he was, you know, fighting to, to get to the next day, the next day. But yeah, where he is today, he uh, has won over 25 Grand Slams in wheelchair tennis. He in 2021, he sorry, 2022, he completed what's called the Golden Slam, which no male tennis player has ever done. And that was winning the Australian, the French Open, Wimbledon, the US Open. And before the US Open, he, he won or defended his gold medal in um, at the Rio, uh, sorry, the Tokyo Paralympics. So to do that um, was amazing. He was named Australian of the Year in 2022. He was um, a champion basketballer in 2008. He won gold medal playing as a basketballer in Beijing and things like that. So he's a really, really great kid. He does a lot of public speaking. He um, has worked with myself and his older brother, Zach, in setting up a couple of great disability businesses. We have a foundation called the Dylan Orcott Foundation where we put on every year the most what they're calling the most accessible music festival in the world. So he keeps us busy, Chad, that's for sure. You know, uh, he's always coming up with something new. He uh, loves television, loves the movies and that. He won an award. He had a couple of shows on TV here in Australia and he won your equivalent of like an, an Emmy, like for best new talent on TV. So his new goal is he wants to win an Academy Award. So he's got an acting coach. He's already in a couple of movies where he's um, voicing a character. It's a one-legged pirate he's voicing for a Disney movie called Scary Girl. So maybe you'll get me back in a couple of years in, on Dadages and we'll be talking about you know, the year he won an Academy Award. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we're here to follow Dylan for the rest of his career, no matter where it goes. <laughs> and this is uh, one of a series of episodes in this month of July, where we'll be connecting with you and your family and following not only Dylan's adventures, but your professional ventures, which also are in the realm of disability. I want to go back to a couple of things you said, and I'm going to kind of work my way backwards. Uh, one, I don't want to gloss over one of the accolades you put out there, Australian of the Year. I mean, that, and that's not just Australian Athlete of the Year. That's Australian Person of the Year. That's got to be some rare air and certainly something to be extraordinarily proud of. 100%, Chad. A few years ago when they started, I can't remember exactly when they started, but maybe like 30 or 40 years ago, and it's a award that you recommend people for the award, lots of people who work in the charity sector. And a few years ago, it was probably a little bit of a popularity contest where, you know, people who had done well in sport or in various fields were given the award. But over the last 15 or 20 years, it's become a really significant award in Australia where people that have made some really great contribution in science, like the guy who invented the cochlear ear implant and things like that. And it also became a really strong award for people with some serious messages of voice, like around Indigenous matters and things like that. So when he was named the Australian of the Year, you're absolutely right. It's not just for his sporting efforts. It was for the, his you know, disability work, his advocacy in that. Obviously, he was a well-known sportsman. But he was pretty popular before then. But when he was named Australian of the Year, and it goes from starts on our Australia Day, which is like your 4th of July on January 26th for the following year. We were receiving over a 1,000 inquiries a week for him to speak at, at events, to attend events and things like that. He did in his wrap-up speech when the new Australian of the Year was named in January 2023, he spent 269 days on an airplane going to different events and venues and stuff like that. 
Wow. That's like Miss America. <laughs> Sometimes you'd be in the equivalent of doing a keynote in Texas, then doing one at lunchtime in Florida, then maybe doing in New York or something that evening, etc. So he really got out and about. He made some great achievements during Australian of the Year. But yeah, his sporting stuff is great. Couldn't be any prouder. But to be named Australian of the Year, to allow him to put disability in the spotlight, Chad, not just about him as a sportsman, but to put disability in the and, – and he was so proud of getting millions of Australians aware and talking about disability, which was his goal. Yeah, it's one of those things that's not just an honour, it's a platform. It's an opportunity to bring something into focus, as you said. Yeah, 100% correct. And, you know, obviously I'm very biased being his dad, but I think he did a, a tremendous job. He had a great team, but as you said – he was just the, the face of it. It was everyone else that helped him, all the Australians that came up to him at airports and, and at events and venues that said to him, hey, Dylan, really pleased that you're Australian of the Year. You've really made me think about disability in a different light and keep doing the great job you're doing, which was meant more than him than, than anything. Let's then kind of rewind all the way back to the beginning of the story you were sharing because amazing that he has achieved so much, but you rewind back to the beginning when your the greatest achievement was surviving the first two weeks of life. Yeah. Everyone has a different journey and everyone has different struggles and challenges that they face with their children. And you can't compare one person's circumstances to another, but I think all of us as parents go through those frightening moments where we face either life or death or, or major consequential decisions with our children. As you said, there is no manual that's given to us as parents to contend with things like that. And I think it's really up to those of us that have raised children and have gone through those experiences to try to do the best we can to help share what we've learned with others. So if someone were to hand you the pen and say, Martin, you get to write the manual, what would you give as the advice for someone who's facing those frightening moments that many of us face with our children early on in life or when, when we're facing health scares or things like that? What got you through or what was the mindset? What was the approach that really worked for you that you would share with someone else going through that? To answer that, I'll tell you a very, very quick story. After his first operation, they put like a, a shield around his spine because the way the, the tumor on his spine had stopped growth and things like that. So they put this shield after they did the operation, removed the tumor, they put this shield around. Unfortunately, after about three weeks, the shield became infected and they had to go in again and remove the shield. So I went down to the operating theater with, with him and, um, you know, they... I handed him over to the surgeons and things like that. And I went back into the room. There's a small waiting room there and I was just on my own. And there was a mother in there because we we're in the children's obviously section of the hospital. And she was really upset. She was crying and, and you know, you could tell she'd been sobbing. And I thought, oh, gee, I wonder what's wrong with her poor kid. And I said, look, are you okay? And can I get you anything? And she said, oh, no, look, I'm, I'm fine. And I'm so worried about my child. I said, you know, is, is it something major? She said, oh, look, she said, we were just at home and I dropped some a glass and it broke and he got a little splinter of glass in his foot and we couldn't get it out. So they've had him under general anesthetic to get it out. And I'm so worried. And, you know, I hope he's going to be okay. And she said, what about you? What about your son? I said, look, something similar like that. But to that mother, that little splinter of glass couldn't have been any more, wasn't worse off than Dylan you know, going in for another life-threatening operation, you know, to remove the shield. So the manual that I'd give to myself compared to the manual I'd give to her is probably very, very different. But I would say this, you find out about these things, this disability, as I said to you before, I knew nothing about the disability that he had. 
and you just learn along the way. It's almost like doing a degree in business or a degree in real estate or marketing and all that sort of stuff. You build up this base of knowledge as you move along and you just do the absolute best you can. You get as much information. If you're unsure about what doctor was maybe telling us, we'd ask another doctor, not you know, to go and get 23 different diagnoses, but you know, sometimes that hair on the back of your neck stands up a little bit and is this the right way to go and things like that. And the manual would be just you've got to absorb as much as you can, learn as much as you can, and then do what's best at the time. I mean, could we have done things differently way back, you know, Dylan's 32 now, all those years ago in 1990 when he was born? I don't think we'd do anything all that differently, but the manual, I don't think it would change very, very much. It's just as get as much information as you can, make the best decisions that you can, and then try and move on. Absolutely. That's, that's great advice. And we'll talk in a few minutes about vernacular and terms and words to use, but one of the terms that floats around the area of, of disability is special needs. And oftentimes that's applied to people with mental disabilities. And I know that that term is maybe out of vogue now and how it's being applied or used. But the reason why I come back to that term is I think every child on the entire planet has special needs because every child is special. And as a parent, you have to meet the needs of, of your child. And there's one of the things I remember talking to a psychologist about my two boys, because my two boys are so different from one another. And I was struggling at the time with my younger son and the connection with him and the relationship. And what he said is raising your first son did absolutely nothing to prepare you for raising the second one. So even within a family, even if you're a professional and you've raised a kid already, it doesn't mean you're ready for the next one because every child is so special and is so unique. It is such a great way to look at it. Really, you shouldn't be talking to me on this podcast. You should be talking to my eldest son, Zach. He is the hero of our family. His mates always joke about how famous his younger brother is. and you know, They call him the forgotten brother or the forgotten son as a joke and things like that. But Zach is the glue that holds our family together. He's got such an incredible personality. When we were having to put all this extra time into Dylan when we were having to spend every weekend for two years with Dylan. Yeah, it was very difficult at the time to devote time to Zach and he's never to this day, Zach's 35, he's never complained, he's never said, oh, why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? And Dylan is the luckiest kid alive to have a brother like Zach. It takes a very strong, very confident young man to exhibit that level of self-reliance and, and tolerance for a situation like that. So that sounds amazing. Yeah, he, he, he really is. And I think that they have a tremendous relationship. You know, they're best mates. They do so much together. They obviously work together in our businesses and things like that. But you're so right about having Zach being so calm never woke up during the night, just loved his food, would drink. And then, you know, like you'd feed him at 10 at night when he was a baby, he'd wake up at six in the morning, all the other mothers and parents group were like, oh my God, my kid wakes up seven times a night, things like that. Dylan was still a great kid despite everything, but um, it was almost a bad thing having Zach. He was such a perfect baby and a perfect child. So it was a very high act for Dylan to follow. Yeah, ruined you as parents. Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get back to, to Dylan a bit. And obviously, as you've explained, Dylan has suffered from paralysis for essentially his entire life and is classified as a paraplegic, correct? Correct, yeah. And maybe you can explain what paraplegic means for people who don't know the technical terms around it. Yeah, sure. Paraplegic is that you're normally 
have uh, the lower half of your body affected by a spinal cord injury or, or an accident or something like that. Whereas a quadriplegic, he normally refers to someone who has a higher level of disability. Traditionally, you might see a quadriplegic using a motorized wheelchair, whereas Dylan, uh, obviously, uh, through his basketball and tennis, he can use a manual wheelchair. You know, he moves around the, the basketball court or the tennis court so quickly and things like that. I'm sure he would destroy all of us in an arm wrestling contest. <laughs> he is very strong. He's played against Novak Djokovic in a wheelchair and absolutely smashed him. So, uh, yeah, that's another feather in his cap. But, um, yeah, it's normally defined by the level of, of disability, the quad, meaning more parts of the body are affected. Now, interesting to talk about paralysis because you and I, in leading up to this interview, talked about paralysis of a different kind. You talked to me about sort of the stigma that exists for those of us that are fully able-bodied when we have to interact in a social setting, in a professional setting with someone who has a disability and the, the hesitancy, the, the barrier, the fear that creates paralysis in all of us and how we try to engage in those environments. Can you kind of share what you've seen over the years and, and what your observations have been in that regard? It really comes down to people's awkwardness around disability and not understanding it, not in a bad way, but not understanding it in as much as I don't want to do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing. So quite often it's not spoken about or people don't approach someone with disability. The example I always give is Dylan, for example, is in a wheelchair user. He's at the local grocery store. He's trying to get something off one of the higher shelves. And invariably, there might be some of the shopping center staff around Dylan. And you can see them thinking, should I go and ask if he needs help? Is that condescending or demeaning if I ask him, does he want help? And invariably, they quite often do nothing and just let him sort it out. Meanwhile, you or Nina will come up behind him and say, g'day, mate, you know, can I give you a hand there? Oh, yeah. Could you pass me the olive oil off the top shelf there? You'll pass it to him. Can I give, do you need a hand with anything else? No, I'm all good. Thanks for that. And you move on because you don't have an awkwardness about disability. And it's the same in life. You know, you're at a party, you see someone in a wheelchair, you see someone who's an amputee or someone who's got a, who's blind or low vision. They might have a service dog or a white cane or something. What do I do? Do, do I ignore them? Do I go up and talk to them? I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to upset them oh, look, maybe I just won't do anything type of thing. And I think that's the biggest challenge people with disability have. I mean, Dylan being a wheelchair user, it's probably the most visible disability, but there are many people out there that have invisible disabilities. They're neurodiverse, they're you know, deaf or hard of hearing, blind or low vision. So it is more challenging for them because especially people who are on the autism spectrum who outwardly quite often do what's called masking. So they're interacting at a normal level, but they're sitting there and, you know, their own minds going, oh, my God, I hate crowds. But, you know, I do want to be at this concert or this tennis match and things like that. So disability is diverse. I mean, in Australia, 20% of the population have a disability. In the US, it's 22%. So ne nearly 75 million Americans have a disability. That's a lot of people. You know, that's a, a large percentage of your population. So I think everyone needs to get in their mind that you're going to meet people with disability. You're going to meet people that have either acquired their disability uh, through an accident or something like that. They were born with their disability. And they are just normal people wanting to live their best life, wanting to travel, wanting to go to the movies, wanting to meet someone and fall in love with them. And they're just absolutely normal members of society. All the same goals that all the rest of us have in life. That's no different. 
Absolutely. I mean, Dylan just wanted to be like his big brother and play sport. Tried swimming and table tennis table and a few things that he could do early. And then he started playing tennis. And in the early days of his tennis, you know, he hit the ball over the net three times and we were cheering like he'd won Wimbledon because <laughs> he got the ball over the net three times. And then, you know, did got to number five in the world as a tennis player, as a junior, and then uh, switched over to basketball, won a couple of medals, a gold medal in Beijing, decided to go back to tennis and, and things like that. But all the time, his brother was playing basketball. His brother was playing Australian football, Australian rules football. His brother was, you know, going out. His brother was going to school. His brother was catching the train to a concert, going to watch a football match. And Dylan just wanted to be like his big brother. When you talk about interactions with other people, you said something to me that made me really think, and it's kind of sad in a way. I think the way you put it was oftentimes the best way to avoid making a mistake when you're in an unsure situation like that is to do nothing at all and to not engage. And that creates that barrier for able-bodied people being able to engage and have positive, productive, meaningful relationships with people who have disabilities. Yeah, it, it's really true, Chad, because we all number one, don't want to make a, a fool of ourselves. You know, we don't want to come across as that person at a party where you do something really bad and everyone's talking about it the next day or talking about it around the water cooler at work or something like that. Well, in these days, they could be broadcasting it on social media in our cancel <laughs> culture and you could get canceled for doing the wrong thing. Yeah, exactly right. We had a, uh, a commentator here on very well-known person. He hosts a game show, Millionaire Hot Seat. I, I know you guys have that show. Well, it probably came from the US. We copied it like we do most of the US television. He's very, very well known in our national football circles and things like that. And they were a, uh, it was a, a big football match and they got a, a member of the, of the public who was a fan of one of the teams, entered the competition and flipped the coin. And at the, you know, toss the coin at the beginning of the match. And this commentator made a comment like, oh, gee whiz, like these people know they're going to flip the coin. They should do a better job of it. And, you know, she the coin barely went up in the air and things like that. Anyway, she was from, uh, she had um, uh, multiple sclerosis and she was picked out specifically because, you know, she had a disability. She was a, a great thing. And that was the best job she could do of flipping the coin. Now, this commentator didn't know that at the time, absolutely, and he apologised absolutely like it was completely inappropriate to make that comment. I wasn't aware of the thing. It was an offhanded, flippant comment that he made. He's He's got a really great personality. He's got a, a – everyone likes this guy generally and stuff like that, but gee whiz – Everyone piled in about how horrible he was and, and anything he did from when he was 12 years old, they were bringing out in the paper and, and, and on social media and things like that. And it was just a genuine mistake. But it's a great example of going up to someone at a party who's maybe a wheelchair user or maybe they're blind or something like that and really wanting to do the right thing, but inadvertently doing the wrong thing. But the big thing I want people to take out of this, Chad, is that people with disability are just like anyone else. Who in the world has ever thought there is a larger woman over there? She must be pregnant. I'll go and say, oh, congratulations. You know, when's the baby due? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not pregnant. I mean, it is our- Yeah, that's a tough one. It is our greatest fear, isn't it? It is our greatest fear of doing something like that. But you know what? I'm sure that woman would say, look, you know, I, actually, you're right. I do need to lose a bit of weight or something like that. <laughs> People with disability. That- <laughs> if it's a very gracious woman, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure about Nina and, and Dana, but anyway. People with, dis- people with disability are the same. If you go up and say something, they'll say, hey, listen, thanks anyway. And let me give you a classic example. You've asked me 
when we had we were talking about it to give a couple of tips about when you meet someone with disability. Well, one of the things is if you go up to meet someone, you say, you know what, there's someone in a, a wheelchair user over there. I want to go and say hello. So you go out and you walk up and you say, g'day, everyone. I'm, uh, hello, I'm Chad Nagel. And you stick your hand out to shake hands. This person mightn't be able to uh, move their arms to shake your hand or their disability with their hands. They mightn't be able you know, to, in a traditional sense, shake your hand. They would say something to you like, hey, what about a fist pump, Chad? They might be able to fist pump or they might say, Chad, great to meet you. I'm not a big handshaker, but hey, thanks for coming over and say hello. You might feel a tiny little bit awkward, but, but you've done the right thing. You've done nothing wrong. And the person with disability, they, they will be gracious enough because they don't have a sign saying, I'm not a handshaker, can't lift my arms up, you know, don't come and talk to me, happy to meet you. But, you know, so in that situation, don't be embarrassed and just, you know, say, hey, great to meet you and carry on with the conversation. In our post-COVID world, the handshake is no longer a guaranteed thing anyway. There you go. Anyone who's able-bodied even, there are plenty of people I know, particularly in areas like California, where there's still a lot of emphasis on social distancing, even at this point, yep. where people say, I, I don't shake hands anymore. And it, I don't think they ever will again in their lifetime. Yeah. For a variety of reasons, I think it's important that we just focus on doing our very best to engage with people, able-bodied or disabled, and play it as it goes. Uh, I think that's what, what your message is, is not engaging is the only mistake you can really make. Perfectly summed up, Chad. Not engaging is the only mistake you can make. And you said you had a couple of other tips that might be helpful for people in these situations to help them navigate a bit better. Are there other pieces of go-to advice you'd offer? Yeah, for sure. I mean, number one, make sure you do something. I think we've already covered that off and uh, don't feel awkward about it because people with disability are fascinating. They're great problem solvers. Most of them have had to overcome obstacles and things like that. They're really great entrepreneurs because of some of the difficulties they've had to overcome. Go over and say hello, but don't be too aggressive and go over and, and don't overcompensate, I think is, is a really strong one. I find sometimes people with disability are approached by people wanting to talk to them, a bit like when you're in another country and you think by shouting and raising your voice louder that the person will understand your poor Portuguese or your poor Spanish or your poor Chinese or whatever it is, yelling really loudly. I don't understand loud <laughs> English any better than I understand quiet English. <laughs> there you go. That's a great example of it. It's so interesting where over the years, Dylan will walk into a restaurant and you might be be next to him there, right? And I've just done something there and you, your listeners are thinking, ha, oh, Martin made a mistake. Dylan doesn't walk. He uses a wheelchair. But every, Dylan says, when I walk into a room, it's just how it's not when I roll into a room. It's, a, it's his version of walking into a room. So when he walks into a restaurant and you might be just next to him and the maitre d' might say, oh, is he going to be okay? And you'll say, well, I don't know. I've never met him. I'm just waiting here for my table. So they won't talk to the person with disability. They won't address them. So when he's with his partner, Chantel, or whether he's with Dana or his brother, they often won't talk to Dylan directly. They'll ask, thinking that that's his care or something like that. So when you go and talk to the person with disability, that is the most important thing is to talk to the person with disability, not with their wife, brother, sister, husband, whatever. They're not a handler. It's just a companion. Talk to them, you know, yeah. and things like that. Absolutely be normal. Be normal 100% because just like you go up to any colleague at work, anyone that when you're at the Stanford um, first football match, you'll be talking to other dads and things like that. It's no different. It's absolutely no different. And then the other thing is 
a lot of people think that it's okay to get a little bit over-friendly and, hi, my name's Chad, lovely to meet you. How come you're in a wheelchair? So maybe that's not the first thing you lead off with, you know, about their disability. I mean, just talk to them as a normal person. And then it might come up, Dylan, especially when he travels to the US, especially when he's in an airport, he said, so many people come up to him and say, thank you for your service. And they just assume that because he's a wheelchair user, that he's been injured. Injured in the military. Yeah, serving for the military. And, and he doesn't even, he just says, thank you. You know, can I buy you a drink? That would be lovely. You know, because it's just not worth going through the, you know, because so many people do come up and it's a, it's a very standard thing. Just don't talk about their disability straight away. But if they bring it up or if you say, listen, I'm, I'm curious to know whether you're in the military or something like that, then they, you know, they say, no, I've never been in the military, but, you know, I was born with a disability. That's a really cool way to do it. But the biggest thing is just be normal. They're just, you know, normal people and things like that. It's really interesting and it was interesting for me because we employ over 50 people with disabilities in our organisation. In talking to people who are deaf or hard of hearing but are profoundly deaf and they use, um, we call it Auslan, the sign language that people talk with. Okay. I think you call it American Sign. Yeah, yeah, ASL. That's correct, yeah, that's correct. So when I'm talking to you, Chad, if you're the person who's deaf, and the interpreter is to your right, the normal feeling is to talk to the interpreter, but you don't. You, I talk to you. Hey, Chad, what's going on? You know, And the interpreter, the, the person with disability, you'll look at, at, at the interpreter, see what they're interpreting. They go, hey, Martin, I'm great. And the, obviously the interpreter is talking back. But it is difficult to get that cadence and rhythm when you first start doing it. We've got some people that work with us all the time that's so natural now and um, you know, it's very easy to do. But first time, really, really challenging. Yeah, I can relate to that because, as you know, I'm working in Central Europe now, and I'm often meeting with people who don't speak English, particularly, and I'm not meeting with people who are businessmen, but I'm meeting with landowners, maybe farmers or people like that we're trying to buy property from in rural areas of Poland. And there's always a, an agent who speaks both English and Polish who's working as an interpreter. But one of my greatest skills that I've developed over years in business is body language and kinesthetics and reading people to understand not just what they're saying, but what they really mean. And if you're talking to the interpreter and you're not looking at the person that you're actually talking to, you miss half the conversation because most communication is nonverbal. And so I think that's really good advice for anyone in a circumstance where you're dealing with someone with a different language, whether it's sign language or a foreign spoken language. Chad, I think it's such a great call because it's universal when you tell them the price for these incredible shopping centers you're building for them, that look of shock when, they t <laughs> when you tell them that price. I think it's universal, no matter what. You don't need an interpreter to know that, wow, I think I've just overstepped the mark. You know, I better pair that back by a couple of billion. So I think it's very, very easy. No, I'm, I don't think I've ever met a landowner that I've offered more for their land than they were expecting. <laughs> <laughs> the look of, that's not enough, Chad, is universal, no matter yeah. what language they speak. <laughs> well, Let's talk a little bit more about language, because one of the things you and I spoke about leading up to this interview is the vernacular. And I think that there is terminology that goes in and out of vogue over time as the language evolves around disabilities. Maybe you can kind of walk us through a few things that maybe are wrong words to use, right words to use, meaning similar or the same things, or things that have changed over time where Maybe certain language was accepted at a certain time point, but now it's evolving in a different direction. Can you give us some examples of that and help our friends and family understand a little bit better? 
Sure, Chad. One of the things I really learned, especially you know, having a child with a disability as he was growing up, but more so since Dylan and I and Zach have been in business together and interacting with a lot more people with disability. Dylan tells a story when someone will ask him about, he'll show them one of his gold medals. And on all the gold medals, they're the same as the Olympic medals with a few differences uh, where they'll predominantly or always have braille on the back of the medal. And people always say two things to him, oh, my God, it's so heavy. You know, everyone says the same thing. And the second thing is, what does the braille say? And Dylan say, I don't know, ask someone who's blind. Just because he has a disability doesn't mean he knows everything about every single disability that's ever been developed. And as we've employed people with different disabilities, we've had to learn the nuances of what they need to have an accessible and inclusive workspace. And a big part of that is language. And um, just like people who identify as LGBTIQ, people of colour. Another complicated vernacular. Correct. What we referred to as you know people who identify as LGBTIQ in the 50s and the 60s is way different now. I mean, if you use some of those words now, same with people of colour that were used back then, well, forget about the cancel culture, you'll just be you know wiped off the face of the planet, and rightfully so, because some of the words were terrible, they were demeaning, they were discriminatory, and they were just awful. Well, it's the same, we and I were talking about it a, a couple of days ago, where words that um, identified people like the word retard or spastic or the word um, cripple and words like that, which many years ago were considered the norm, now not only are considered offensive, but they're offensive because there's much better words. So a person who, like Dylan, is is a wheelchair user, and, and Dylan said that he did experience some bullying when he was at school, and, and you know, he, it really defined the person that he is today where he said, I'm just not going to stand for this. And it's people thinking they're being funny and things like that, and, you know, they'd call him the cripple. At what age did he experience the greatest of that bullying, just out of curiosity? I mean, I'd have to ask him, but he I, I think probably from about, you know, 10 or 12 onwards, where kids are getting smarter and they're getting more um, interacting a lot more on a social level, you know, they'd call him the cripple or the crip or something like that. They might have been doing it as a bit of a joke or something like that. But at the time, you know, Dylan didn't certainly think of it as a joke. So the real, I, I, I guess, again, what I really liked about when we were having this chat, Chad, and what I liked about your some of the comments that you made in the in the other episode that preceded this one was that you were prepared to talk about disability, knowing that you may misspeak, you may say something incorrect, but you have the guts to make yourself vulnerable and say, "I want to learn more about this." I learn to say the right thing, but I'm prepared to be told, "Hey, Chad, look, hear what you're saying there, but here's a better way to say it." And I think if everyone takes that on board and it's not that, oh, gee whiz, these people with disability are so particular about what you have to say. And the classic example I give is we use the word disabled bathroom. You use the word, I think, handicapped bathroom. Is that correct? Handicapped. And I think it's started to shift more into people saying ADA bathroom. Okay. Well, if you use the word disabled bathroom or parking spot or handicapped bathroom or parking spot, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that bathroom. It works perfectly. It's not, it doesn't have anything. There's no broken pipes in there. It's not handicapped. You know, the door's not broken. There's plenty of toilet paper in there. The sink works fine. It's an accessible bathroom. I've certainly met some disabled <laughs> bathrooms in my time, but that's a different story. As a developer, I think you could tell them. Dylan, Dylan put some photos in. He, he cracks me up. He'll go into an accessible bathroom. And the mirror will be so high that, like, all you can see is the top of his head, you know. So 
some great accessible bathroom designer just didn't quite go, you read the manual to the full thing. But that parking spot or that bathroom, they're accessible. And they're accessible to Dylan, but they might also be accessible to a mother who's got a baby and two small children, and that's a more convenient bathroom for her to use. It's accessible to someone like you, Chad, who maybe had a, a, a bit of a skiing accident and you were on crutches for a couple of weeks because you blew out your knee or something. It's accessible for you. Just like automatic opening glass doors at every building we ever go to, a fantastic thing for you and me because we've got our shopping or something like that. But they're a real needed thing for Dylan because they're accessible. So think about it in those terms. Put the, the need first. So Dylan's not a wheelchair user. He's a person who uses a wheelchair. Put the person first, not the device. So he's not a wheelchair user. He's not a guide dog user. He's not a white cane user. He's not a hearing aid user. He's a person who is deaf or hard of hearing. They're a person who is blind or low vision. So if you just think about it in those terms, I really don't think there'd be too many people. You know, of course, there's some people, you know, in their 80s and 90s that you grew up with the word cripple and retard and things like that. And then what we want to do is cut out that sort of language. You know, you've had a massive, it's been Super Bowl Sunday, you're at the office on on, on Monday morning and you've had a huge party and you're like, oh, you know, how was your party? Oh, man, oh, God, I was so retarded. I was so blindly drunk and stuff like that. I mean, it's very common choice of words and things like that. But you think about the effect that that might have on someone who's neurodiverse, they're autistic, to hear, and they're, they're working with you. And, you know, to hear that their colleague thinks that they were retarded or blind or something because they're too much to drink. And all that is slowly coming out of the language of today. But the thing is, have a go, just like you're doing, Chad, you know, try and do the best you can. And the person with disability will say, hey, hear what you say about a handicapped bathroom, but it's actually the best way to talk about it is an accessible bathroom. And it makes real sense, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's certainly logical. I think describing amenities, describing things rather than labeling them, and similarly, looking at a person always as a person first that has certain attributes rather than being defined by the attribute. Again, you've summarized that really, really well. There used to be a terminology out there, wheelchair bound. We used to have a bit of a giggle about that. We didn't get D Dylan up in the morning, strap him or bind him into his wheelchair and, and that's what it is. But there are some people who are more highly, um, have a, a quadriplegics that, that have a, a high level of disability that might be strapped into their wheelchair, but they're not bound to that wheelchair. It's how they get around, just like you and I wear a pair of trainers or something like that. They'll use a mobility device to make it, it, it better for them. A great friend of ours who I really want you to meet, a guy called John Register. He's an incredible athlete. He was in the top 20, I believe, in the world when he was younger. He went to the University of Arkansas. John's a, a person of color, and he was in the elite military athletes program in the 110-meter high hurdles. He was Olympic bound and, and training, you know, training so hard. Training early one morning, it was cold. He went over one of the hurdles and slipped and damaged his leg so horrendously and damaged the nerves that they were irreparable and they amputated his, he's a high leg amputee. John then went to the Sydney Paralympics, which is so cool, won a sil silver medal in the long jump. And John is such an incredible public speaker. He, you know, he is involved in so many areas around disability, but people pay a fortune to hear him talk all the time because he talks about 
the difference it was, you know, being an elite athlete, you know, being a soldier in, in Afghanistan and, and doing a couple of tours there and stuff like that. And then, you know, being a person with disability and how he saw himself differently and things like that. So a big part of that was the language around the disability that he that he had. So he has, does a tremendous job in talking to people so much better than what I ever could about just normalising disability and whether it's the language, whether how you approach someone with disability. It just comes down to the same thing. Just be normal. I think that's the bottom line at the end of the day is just be normal. We're all people, no matter what our attributes may be. Yeah. Speaking of that, let's learn more about what makes up Martin as well. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time talking about Dylan, talking about the great work that you've done and, and the, the focus on helping our friends and family understand disability better. Thank you for sharing all of that. I'm sure it's been very, very helpful for everyone who's who's listening in. But I want to rewind some and talk about, because I believe that one of the things that I've learned in my life is that God doesn't bring challenges into our, our lives unless he knows that we're capable of handling them. And so I've heard enough about your upbringing, but I want to hear more and I want to share more with the friends and family about your origin story and everything that prepared you from early in life to bring you to that moment when you faced you know, that crisis in the first couple of weeks of, of Dylan's life that prepared you to tackle that, to take it on and to be the right father for him for the rest of his life. Well, thanks, Chad. I mean, I guess you'd have to ask both Dylan and Zach whether I'm the right father for the rest of their life, that I can't self-rate myself. You know, I hope I'm doing an okay job. I think the results speak for themselves, Martin. <laughs> I appreciate you being humble, but I think it, it, we'd have a hard time finding anyone to argue with that statement. <laughs> well, that's very flattering. Thank you. It's interesting. When I was growing up, I never met my real father. He uh, and my, my mother separated when I was just a, a young baby. So I've seen some photos of, of me with him, but I was just a baby and um, have never met him or heard from him You know, since I, I was a young child. So as I grew and, and got a little bit older, I was you know lucky enough that my mother remarried and, and I had a wonderful stepfather who was a, a doctor and he was someone that took myself and, and my elder sister in and treated them as his own. And it was you know, very lucky from that perspective. And you actually, when we were chatting the other day, reflected on the fact that, uh, and I'd never even thought about it, the fact that, that I had a, a doctor as a, as a stepfather, a father, you know, I never called him a stepfather. And, and it did help prepare me for some of the challenges with, with Dylan. Although when he was born and the first 17 hour operation had been done and, and dad flew down from Sydney, we live in Melbourne. You know, it's an hour flight away. It's like LA to San Francisco. He came in and he met with a surgeon and was with uh, Miss Lewis for about two hours and came back to the room and we're all standing waiting. And he looked at me and then he collapsed in my arms crying. And it wasn't the reaction I was hoping for that I'm sort of patting him on the back and comforting him. I was waiting for that. It's all okay. It's going to be great. He'll be up and running in two weeks and, and all that sort of stuff. But uh, you were hoping dad would come riding in on his horse and be the white knight and save the day and uh, that you could lean on him and, and he'd be the source of strength for the family. Yeah. But it, I think you know, on reflection, that moment showed that you never stop being a parent, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or, or, or something like that. But I think as I've got older in life and moved on in life, the fact that I never met my real dad, that, that I've maybe had to work a little bit harder on, on certain things is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I always say that, you know, it's not a negative at all. I know you guys love watching 
Dr. Phil and Oprah and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, there's many people on there who blame lack of parents in their early days and things like that. But And everyone, of course, is different. But for me, in my particular case, you know, I think it was very, very important that it was a defining moment for me as I grew older that, hey, to a sense, you're on your own. You've got to make your own way in life. You've got to have your own successes, obviously have your own failures and things like that. It was a challenging time, you know, having two kids at any time, but certainly challenging in as much as one had required special time, special assistance, more time than, than the other child. You still had to pay the bills. You still had to go to work. Uh, you know, it wasn't like, oh, let me just sit back for a couple of years and solve this problem and, and make sure Dylan's all okay. And then I'll get back to, to my career. Uh, we certainly weren't in a position where we couldn't have income coming into the house and things like that or into the family. So I think that's important. But first, I think what's important, Chad, is that both Zach and Dylan are very different. You know, as a parent, I'm sure both Cam and, and Braden are very different, as you, you highlighted earlier on. And I think, and certainly as I've got older, it's made me realise that you've got to give them time to do what they want to. And I think one of the greatest compliments Dylan has ever given myself and his mother as a as parents was that we didn't wrap him in cotton wool. He was allowed to do things. And actually, Zach should be the one complaining. We probably wrapped him in cotton wool like you do with your first child. Dylan was 13, uh, 14 and travelling the world with a tennis coach. If Zach had have said, Dad, can I travel the world and play tennis? If I no way, like get to your room and <laughs> I'm not letting you catch the train into the city on your own, let alone travel around the world. So, you know, for Dylan to have the disability and, and to be doing all these things, you know, again, as I said, Zach was the trailblazer for Dylan. But, but certainly as a parent, don't wrap him up in cotton wool. One of the hardest things I've ever done, you might laugh at this, is um, after he won gold in the Beijing Paralympics, he got headhunted by the, the Canadian national coach, a guy called Mike Frogley, who was also the head coach at the University of Illinois in beautiful downtown Champaign-Urbana. Yeah, so he got a scholarship to play wheelchair basketball. And I went over to Champaign-Urbana in, in August and I set him up and spent multiple dollars and trips to Walmart, getting everything decked out in blue and orange and what have you. And then the morning I was leaving, I was actually flying back to Hawaii to meet Dana for a bit of a vacation. And I stood with him at the airport, little Champaign-Urbana Regional Airport, which was taking me to Dallas-Fort Worth and then on to, on to Honolulu. And it was one of the toughest things I've ever done, like to say goodbye to him because, you know, here he was on the other side of the world. And although he'd travel, he always came back home. But, you know, he was thousands of miles away. If something happened to him, if he got injured, if he got sick, we weren't there. And it was really one of the toughest things I've ever had to do. And, and I'm not a crier at all by nature. But let me tell you, I was pretty teary as I, you know, just didn't want to let him go as he, he gave me a cuddle. Now, for him, he'd tell a different story. He'd been to about seven frat parties the night before. He'd barely got out of bed to see me off. You know, he said, oh, I'll come to the airport with you, Dad. I'll catch an Uber back. He stunk of alcohol and probably couldn't wait to get rid of his old man because, you know, college life was looking pretty fresh. So <laughs> I think there were two very different people at that airport that day. For you, it was a sad goodbye pulling at the heartstrings. For him, it was just, get out of here, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> you've been here two weeks. You've overstayed, your, you've overstayed your visit by about a week and a half. You know, the room's all set up. I don't need any more microwaves or, or fridges or what have you. What I found out later on, Chad, was that the university system, if you have a student with a disability and they were part of your fraternity, 
you got like an extra payment from the university, uh, a couple of extra thousand dollars a year that went into your account. And all he had to do was say that, you know, this kid, so he was going to the Hispanic frat, he was going to the Jewish frat house, he was going to all these different frat. I said, what are you doing? Like going to all these different things. So He was the moneymaker. There you go. He, he was having a great time in his first, what do they call it? Rush week, I think they call it. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah, he was a very popular kid during rush week. I really appreciate all the... The, the support I get from people when he won Australian of the Year, you know, they said, you must be so proud. And of course I am. I'm proud of both my sons, super proud of both of them and the achievements they've done. But really, I think I said to you when we were chatting previously, I provided some DNA, I provided housing, I provided education, clothing and stuff like that. You know, they're both the incredible sons they are because of their own drive and determination. And, um, you know, I think I'm 1% of Dylan's success and really, you know, it's 99% up to him of what he's done, but it's always nice to be recognized and, and spoken about. Well, it's an important 1% for sure, even if the number is that small. And I think, I heard you share something with me that I thought was really powerful and meaningful, which is you said that if there's one thing that you feel you really conveyed to your sons, it's the message that there's nothing you can't do and there's no problem we can't solve. And it's pretty clear to me that they heard that and that they're living that and that's part of their being and part of their lives and the way they live now. Where did that lesson come from in you? Where do you feel you cultivated that spirit, that can-do spirit, and then how do you see it in them today? Yeah, Chad, you're absolutely right. If that's the one thing I've passed on to both the boys, I'll die a really happy guy. And, and I do see it every day with both of them. When I was about 15, my birth mother and I had a bit of a fractious relationship. She had some tendencies toward not being happy with herself and that translated out. And, and I just one day decided that I couldn't take it anymore. I just left home. So Basically, as a 16-year-old, I was fending for myself. I, I got a part-time job and, and still went to school and stuff like that. And again, people could look at that and think, wow, that's pretty tough. And, and you know, my circumstances changed later on and, and my step I, I went and lived with my stepbrother, which totally changed my life for the better. But for that period of time when I was just looking after myself, going to school, wanting to get an education, it was pretty tough. And I think that was a great lesson for me that this is what I want to do. I mean, I did always want to become a lawyer. I never, ever ticked that off because I didn't have the ability to, to go to university because I sort of had to look after myself to a certain extent. Although I'm 60, they say it's never too late. So I might, you know, become a 65-year-old lawyer somewhere. Never too late. I think that showed me that, you know, you've got a problem solved for yourself. You know, you can sit in the corner crying or you can lament, oh, poor me or something like that. And again, there might be some people in similar circumstances that haven't had the success that I've had or didn't have the opportunity that I have. And I really feel for those people, but I'm, I'm only talking about my own circumstance. And I remember Dylan had an operation, Chad, and the register you know, to the, to the surgeon was doing the preparation and, and they were putting a catheter in him. And at the end of the catheter during the operation, there's a little balloon they blow up. So it keeps the catheter inside the bladder and the urethra and the unbeknownst at the time, but the registrar, before it got to the end of Dylan's urethra into his bladder, he blew the little balloon up too early and it ruptured Dylan's urethra. And he was having a, an operation, nothing to do with his, you know, his waterworks or his plumbing or something else. And um, they came, got us into the recovery room and they asked us because we used to ca cathedralize Dylan ourselves when he was younger and we couldn't do it. And 
Before the operation, I'd seen his urologist, a guy called Robert Yardley. I'd seen him in the corridor and, you know, we would see him all the time when we take Dylan for appointments. And I thought to myself, I need Robert Yardley. And although I don't think it was at the time, but if you can imagine the theme of Mission Impossible humming in my head, I ran down the corridors looking for him. I ran into the car park and I found him in his car about to leave. And whilst I didn't quite, you know, slide Tom Cruise-like across the hoods, I said to him, Mr. Yardley, I said, we need your help. And he said, oh, I've got to get some. I said, I need you to come with me now. And anyway, he luckily enough came back. He operated on Dylan again, which was the best possible thing because if we had a waited at 24 hours or 48 hours, he wouldn't have been able to get the result he did. Could have been irreparable damage, yeah. Correct, yeah. And it was just good luck that, you know, Mr. Yardley was still there. And maybe some of your 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 listeners are thinking, wow, this guy's a full-on nut job, you know, like, you know, going and basically dragging the the, the doctor out of the, the car. But, but I knew it just had to be done. I knew that it was important to make sure that for Dylan's best result to get this done. Now, if Mr. Yardley had already left, we would have tried something else, of course. But it was just, you know, that, and I think that that was a problem that I solved. I was lucky, you know, it all worked out for Dylan and things like that. But I think sometimes we always say a little bit, oh, you know what, not to worry. We'll try that next time. It didn't work out this time. I think if you maybe just push that little bit harder, try and get a better result, whether you're a parent, whether you're in business, whether you're in a relationship, you know, whatever, I think sometimes you can get you can get a better result. Well, two things come to mind when you say that. One is specifically in the realm of medicine, I think what people are often far too afraid to do is aggressively advocate for themselves. No matter how good your doctor is, you know your body better than anyone else does. And people are often unwilling to assert themselves in a medical environment uh, out of deference or respect for for the medical providers. But you had a very extreme example and heroic example of self-advocacy or advocating for a child, a, a minor. And I think that it's really, really important that people hear that and understand there's nothing wrong with advocating for yourself in a medical setting. The other thing that I heard you saying, and, and it resonates really strongly with me because it's really the Hegel family's driving force that we always say Part of our family culture is there's the old expression of recognize and control what is within your control and don't sweat the things that aren't within your control. But we add sort of the third pillar of that, which is do everything you can to shift things from the second column into the first, move things into your control so that you can seek a better outcome rather than being a passive participant in your own life. It's a great way to look at it, Chad. I think in business, it's really important. You cannot always solve every problem, but what is the best outcome you can get from that problem, I think is a good way to look at it. The best outcome on that day with Dylan was to get Mr. Yardley back there, but then we'd have to look at, okay, what's option B? When I say the guy, the both Zach and Dylan are great problem solvers, I think they look at option A, B, C, how can we do it the best way and things like that. And of course, it doesn't always work out perfectly. It doesn't always get you the result that you want. But at least you can sit at yourself with yourself at the end of the day and say, well, yeah, it didn't quite work out how I'd hoped, but gee whiz, it's better than what it could have been. I think if you can sit down and say that at the end of the day, maybe you'll be happier with yourself. So you mentioned a business environment. One of the other things you shared with me leading up to this interview is a, uh, a different challenge that you created for yourself, which is going into business, but with not one, but two of your sons. <laughs> Tell us about those adventures and what it's like working in the Alcott family. 
Well, I bought one of those t-shirts that says, I don't need Google. I have two sons that tell me everything I need to know. It's very, very true. We had a, a colleague that worked with us and she said that in the beginning, when we would have meetings, like board meetings and stuff like that, it was like sitting at the Orcott family dinner table while everyone was arguing and yelling at each other. But several years down the track, that had all disappeared and it was much more formal and, and business-like. So that was a huge compliment. I took that as a, you know, very, very happy that they felt that way. But yeah, Dylan to me at the end of the, after the 2016 Rio Paralympics, and he was doing all these high-level keynotes. And he said, Dad, you know, I talked to the, the top executives at like airlines and banks and um, financial services company. And he talked to the top 50 or 100 executives and he'd come back to me and say, Dad, how do we get the message out to the thousands and the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that work for these organisations about accessibility, inclusivity, employing people with disability? And we came up with the concept of Get Skilled Access. And it's a disability consulting uh, organisation and it's built on the basis of its real-life disability experience delivered by real-life people with disability. So we have 50 or 60 staff that work for us. We have a what's called a disability a quality employment index of about 87%. So you either have a disability or lived experience of disability. We're what you guys called in the US Adobe, a, a disability-owned business organisation or enterprise. And it's really, really important that, as Dylan says, if you're going to talk about disability, you need to have someone with disability with a seat at that table. Imagine if we were um, at an organisation chat and there were 10 of us in a board meeting and we wanted to be more, talk about equitable gender numbers within our organisation, and we got 10 white guys to sit on that panel. We didn't involve any women, any people from a diverse background and things like that. It's exactly the same. You want to talk about disability? Well, you need to involve people with disability. One of the things that grew out of that was the inequity of people with disability in employment. In the US, under your um, American with Disability Act, the number hasn't changed for 34 years. The number of people employed with disability is around 30% as opposed to people without disability, which is about 88%. And that disparity between those two numbers, Chad, has barely moved in 33 years, which is just amazing. In Australia, it's almost identical numbers and it hasn't in 28 years. So why is there this huge disparity? So to help that, we built a platform called The Field, which is a platform that connects people with disability looking to work with employers who are looking to employ more inclusively. And there's this thing in the world we've got called unconscious bias, Chad, and that is Dylan is going for an interview with an organisation that he is perfectly suited for. And we used to talk to recruiters about that. And we said, would you tell the organisation that Dylan's in a wheelchair before the interview, even though that you know it's accessible, that he, there's a lift to get up to the interview room? And 95% of them would say, of course I would. And we'd say, why would you do that? And they said, well, it just makes everyone feel more comfortable and things like that. And then invariably, the person who's about to interview Dylan in a wheelchair has this unconscious bias. Oh, no, he's got a disability. What am I going to say? Is this room right? Where are we going to sit? You know, are we going to have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on improvements within the workplace, putting in ramps and bathrooms in case, you know, we don't meet it? Oh, it's probably better not to, dis to, to interview him in the first place. And that's the unconscious bias. We ask that same recruiter. We say, well, if it was a person of colour who was going to the interview, would you ring up and say, I'm sending you a person of colour? Of course I wouldn't. What about if they were a bit fat or a bit chubby? Would you say I'm sending a chubby person? They go, no, well, why would I do that? Well, it's exactly the same with disability. Why would you make a, a point about that? With the field, Dylan will set up his profile or a person with disability. They can send a video CV 
rather than a, a PDF or an audio CV. And then the, the organization, they put down what their accessibility advantages are, like they, they have a lift, they have accessible bathroom and all that sort of stuff. And then the algorithm matches you with, with that company based on your skill set, your accessibility needs and stuff like that. And by the time the person with disability gets to an interview with you, Chad, you don't care about their disability. It's just about what their skill set is. All that unconscious bias and worry about disability has already been handed over. Well, I don't want to give away too much of the, uh, the, the story sure. because we have another episode to go and you guys will have the chance to give the full pitch about the field. Uh, when we get together next time. 100%. Uh, but that was a great intro to whet the appetite of the friends and family and get them ready and geared up for when we do have uh, Entrepreneur's Corner and showcase the field. But I think it's amazing to know that, you know, now that our friends and family have gotten to know you better and know more about your family, to see how much you've truly synthesized work and life and family around this mission and around this area of focus. Uh, that must be incredibly meaningful for you and, and for the time that you share with, with the boys as well. It really is. The businesses we do, plus the work we all do together on the Dylan Orcott Foundation, which is a foundation for where Dylan's mission is to help young Australians with disability achieve their goals and dreams. You know, Some of the grants we've given away, some of the education grants and things like that to young people with disability that have really changed their lives. That in addition to going to an organisation where they might be like one of our biggest stadiums here, the Melbourne Cricket Ground holds 100,000 people. I know that's small fry for you guys, but it's quite a lot of people in Australia. But working with them on how the accessible an inclusive journey for patrons with disability can be better. And then to see those changes in place when you actually go to the football or to a concert there yourself and to see that, wow, we were responsible for making those changes. And there's all these happy people with disability enjoying it because of the work, you know, especially what Zach does in that area with the business where he's working on the access consulting and stuff like that. It really, really does feel good. On the other side of the coin, Chad, please call me Call me and let's have a long talk because before the shingle goes out for, you know, Hegel and Sons developments, I think it would be a wonderful thing for you, but call me first and I'll, I'll tell you a couple of pitfalls, you know, that you might need to avoid. You'll help me know why that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But, you know, there's good and there's bad. There's pros and there's cons, like everything in life. Yeah. I'd love to see Hegel and Sons up and running one day. Well, speaking of pros and cons of family, this is something that I want to focus on as we wrap up today. And I know a topic that is very meaningful to you and very meaningful to me as well. And you've talked about how changes in life, changes in family, divorce, a parent that's not in the equation, how a lot of people can look at those things as an excuse, as a crutch, as a justification for why they don't do something or why they don't achieve to a certain level or why they're incapable of doing something in their lives. And I think that your story growing up and the fact that your father being out of the picture left room in your life for your stepfather to come in and have such a meaningful impact on you and your development and preparing you for the rest of your life. And then you and I have both benefited from after having first marriages that drifted apart for different reasons. And it'd be great if you could kind of recap for the friends and family what you shared with me about how it was actually the journey of, of going through everything that you and your first wife invested in Dylan and then kind of coming to the end of that journey that led to a, a moment of, of separation. 
But that wasn't a loss. That just left the door open for Dana to come into your life, just as Nina has come into mine. And you and I have both seen now how amazing the role of a step parent can be in helping us raise our two boys. Maybe you can talk about about those subjects because I find them so heartwarming and so fascinating for both of us. Yeah, you and I, first of all, we're batting well above our our average, Chad, in the beautiful partners that we have. Uh, We're very, very lucky. I do thank my lucky stars every day for that one. Yeah, Dylan is the luckiest kid on earth because his mother, he was you talk about destiny and and she's the most wonderful mother and left no stone unturned in making sure Dylan, everything was done, you know, for him. If they said, you know, you need to crawl on your hands and knees a thousand miles to make Dylan better, she would have done it. You know, there was nothing there and he's very lucky. Both the boys are very lucky to have such a wonderful mother. Um, When Dylan was born and, you know, when both the kids were born, especially with Dylan, there was nothing that could have separated us in terms of the way we thought about raising the boys, about making sure Dylan was okay from a medical point of view and stuff like that. But as Dylan got more independent, sort of 15, 16 and stuff like that, you know, we realised that we had different goals and we had different objectives that we wanted to do. We did grow apart and, and unfortunately separated, which is really tough for me coming from a family where I'd never met my father and I was always a stepchild and things like that. The last thing I ever wanted to do was divorce. But on reflection, in hindsight, it was not only the best thing that could happen to both of us, but also in meeting Dana and remarrying and um, having such a wonderful, you know, partner. She's the love of my life and, and, you know, being very, very lucky to have, you know, such a wonderful second chance of, of marriage. And the relationship he has with the boys is incredible. Wasn't so good from the start with Zach. You know, he struggled a little bit with it because although he liked Dana, he felt that maybe he was, um, you know, being disloyal to his mum by by liking Dana so much. But we soon got over that and she has an incredible relationship with the boys. You know, Dana and I haven't had any children of our own. It was a decision that Dana made that, she was happy with having two wonderful stepsons who she loves more than life itself. And the things that they, the boys do with their mum, they do different stuff with Dana. They ask Dana about different stuff. They know that she's got a great skill set for. So extremely, extremely lucky. And, and the families all get on now. We spent Christmas with our extended families. You know, the boys' mum was there and Dana and I were there and, and Dylan's partner's family were all there and stuff like that. So it's good that We're in a place like that. I know not everything goes as smoothly. And in the early days, it certainly wasn't as smooth as that. But it's nice as we all get a little bit older that everyone can enjoy life moving forward and be happy. Well, and it's nonlinear. There are obviously always twists and turns along the way to building a blended family relationship. That's not one for which there's a manual written either. (laughs) Look, I I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, one of the points I do quickly want to make is that you know, having a child with a disability was certainly not the factor of, of you know, myself and, and Dylan's mum, the boy's mum breaking up. You know, if anything, it, it bound you closer together. But on the other side of the coin, I do know many families that have children with disability, especially kids that are neurodiverse. And it is very, very challenging, Chad. And the fact that some of them do break up because of the child's disability, some people don't handle it as well as others. And and I really have heartfelt appreciation, support for them. People might say, wow, how could you break up when your kid's got disability? But it, it is challenging. And as I said, especially for kids that are neurodiverse, <clears throat> have behavioral challenges and things like that, it is hard. So I have utmost respect for families, however they exist, especially when you are dealing with the challenges around disability. 
yeah, we have to remember that as parents, we're still human. We don't suddenly become superhuman just because we're mom and dad and we all have our limitations. Exactly. As we've talked about, you know, having those bonus parents in your family increases your capacity and, and your ability to lean on them even more. And, and I know how magical it's been for our family and for yours as well. So it's great to hear those stories and great to hear how everything has fit together. We'll look forward very much to continuing to learn even more about you, about your family, learning about the field, seeing what we can do as datages to offer advice, perspective, and guidance as you're looking to grow your business and enter more heavily into the U.S. market after having been very successful in Australia. I think it's going to be a great opportunity in our next episode to, to connect and, and have that experience. And I know that the Datages friends and family will be, really be looking forward to that and will take a lot from it as well. This has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed having the time to reconnect. I've learned even more about you than I've, I've known the last six years. And sometimes it's great to peel back some of the layers of what we have in a normal social setting of what we talk about, what we don't talk about when you're just having casual, engaging conversation and really get to some of these really meaty and, and meaningful topics. It's really been special and I appreciate you being so forthcoming and sharing so much with me and with the, the Datages friends and family here today. And one last thing that you'll get a chance to share is I want to get the very best worst dad joke from down under that that you might be able to share with our audience <laughs> well you know there's so many chat there's just so many great ones i mean we could do a whole couple of podcast series just on that but i went with one which is favorite of mine and it's quite topical and and that is when i was a kid my mother told me i could be anyone i wanted to be but it turns out identity theft is a crime <laughs> Uh, yes, that, that would be a crime, I'm, I'm assuming, in Australia as it is in the United States. Very much so. Very much so. But you know, based on your theory of you can do anything you want to be, I thought that was maybe appropriate. And listen, I've loved our chat today. I hope your daddy's audience isn't bored by all my stories. I hope I didn't use the word mate too many times. <laughs> it, like I said, we're learning new language every day. And this has been great. It's been wonderful to connect with you and to share these wonderful stories. And look forward to talking to you again and seeing you again very soon for our next episode. Same here, Chad. Look forward to it. Yeah. And until then, to the rest of the Dadages friends and family, I'll remind them, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I am doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now. <laughs>